It's the last Sunday before Christmas, and I can hardly wait. Can you? Christmas is exciting. We get to relive just a little bit of the anticipation and the joy that must have accompanied Mary and Joseph as they went to Bethlehem together, knowing that the child to be born was the Messiah. The one who in some sense is the fulfillment of every promise that God has ever made to him, made to us. Um, You read in the New Testament, Paul writes, he says, in Christ, all God's promises are yes in him. And Mary and Joseph experienced that, and we get to experience it, you know, looking back. And for the past few weeks now, we've been looking at... Hello. Uh, Some of the promises that God has made to us in the Old Testament about the coming of Messiah. And this week, I want to slow down just a little bit and look closely at just two verses, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. If you aren't there already, I'd like you to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, And if you're here last week, we looked at these briefly, but now we're going to look at them in a little more detail. And this is what God's Word says in these verses. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Verse 6 begins with very careful wording. It talks, first of all, about a child to be born The Messiah was born. It was a real birth. A real birth. One of my favorite Christmas songs is called Labor of Love by Andrew Peterson because of its very realistic portrait of what the birth of Messiah must have been like for Mary. And it starts out this way. It says, It was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. And you could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night in the streets of David's town. And the stable was not clean. And the cobblestones were cold. And little Mary, full of grace, with the tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. It was a labor of pain It was a cold sky above, but for the girl on the ground in the dark, with every beat of her beautiful heart, it was a labor of love. And we tend to wash away all the blood and sweat and tears. Have you ever seen a woman who has just given birth look as great as Mary does in all of our little artwork? I was there for the birth of all four of my children, and with apologies to my bride, she didn't look that great. She looked exhausted and sweaty and tired and sore. 
She didn't look like she'd just come from the mall and makeup counter, right? That, didn't, that isn't how it was. It was a real birth, and I'll tell you why. Because if you read back in Genesis 3, what you find is that the curse on the woman for her sin includes pain and sweat and blood and tears in the process of giving birth to a child. And Jesus was not permitted to enter the world any other way except through the results of that curse because Jesus came to experience every aspect of life down here. Life under sin. Life under the curse. In fact, if you look toward the end of his life, you see the same thing. The first sin takes place in a garden. Where does Jesus cry out? In a garden. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. What's the first sin involved? A tree. Where does Jesus die? On a tree. From beginning to end of Jesus' life, he experiences the full effects of sin and the curse. It's a real birth. A real birth of a real child in real world historical time-bound terms. He's born through the pain of the curse that he might break the curse and its hold over all of us. He's a fully human child who grows up to be a fully human man so that he can die for, as a substitute for all of us humans. And in this way, John's Gospel explains it. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, because He is not just a child who is born, He is a Son who is given. And lots of people get confused on this point, so I want to make this very, very clear. A lot of people read their Bible like this. They, they read the Old Testament and they, and they see a, a, a lot of stuff in there about God's wrath and about God's judgment against sin. And they think that, well, in the Old Testament, God was like that. And, that, and then what we celebrate at Christmas is that God had a son and he kind of mellowed out after that and became more about grace and all that, right? Nothing could be further from the truth. In reality, the Scripture makes it very, very clear that the Son has always existed. He was in the beginning with God, according to John's Gospel. But He was given to us at Christmas through Mary that He might be the Son of David, who was fulfillment of prophecy for us. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. There was never a time when the son did not exist, but according to Galatians 4.4, at just the right time, the son was given to be the Savior. The child's son is fully God. And verse 6 underlines that for us in the titles that he carries. He, he is the wonderful counselor. Let me explain that for a minute. The word wonderful translates a Hebrew word that means beyond human capabilities. 
You know, we use the word awesome for everything, okay? Like that's an awesome movie, those are awesome nachos, those are whatever. But the word, uh, you know, that's an awesome car, etc. But the word awesome literally means awe-inspiring, and it used to mean uh, something that only could be properly identified with God. And when it's talking about the word wonderful, it means that he is the counselor par excellence, the, the one that exceeds by a mile every other counselor that has ever been. It isn't like, you know, Jesus is a, is a better counselor slightly than someone else that you might go to, like maybe at the Antioch group or wherever. It's like, it, it's like Jesus and other counselors are in a race, Jesus finishes, goes in, uh, takes a shower, changes clothes, has lunch, takes a nap, and then everybody else comes across the line. Okay? He is so far above every other kind of counselor. He is a, a counselor beyond our limits and abilities. And by the way, you know, I've, I've been to some counselors before, talked to them about various issues, uh, some, sometimes... Uh, with reference to things in my family, sometimes with other issues that have come up. And I can tell you that there are good and bad counselors, right? Some of them you go to and you go, well, that was a waste of 50 bucks, <laughs> right? But no one who seeks Jesus Christ for counsel ever regrets that they went to him for advice. They're never sorry that they did because he has unlimited wisdom. He is also mighty God. And again, that word that's translated here, mighty, is helpful. It's a word that has to do with heroism and rescue. And so the child son born of Mary predicted by Isaiah is the hero that rescues, who also is God in the flesh. Colossians 2.9 talks about Jesus this way, In Him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is not just fully God, but He is the God who rescues, the God who saves from sin and death and from hell itself. And so He has not just matchless wisdom as our wonderful counselor, but also matchless power because He is the heroic, mighty God saves. He is also the everlasting Father. Another way you could translate that into English would be with the phrase Father of Eternity, meaning that He is the Creator and the Originator of all things because He existed before they did. He brought all creation into existence. For of him and through him and to him are all things. That's what Isaiah is talking about. That, that Jesus pre-existed eternity. Now think about that. How far back is our, how, how old is our universe? I have no idea. But however old it is, Jesus is there to bring it all into existence. How old are the angels? Beats me. But however old they are, he was there before they were. 
There never was a time when he did not exist. And what is beautiful about this title is we see not only his eternal power, but also his fatherly care for us, like a good dad watching over his kids. And we see finally that he is Prince of Peace. Recently read an interview from Steve Croft of 60 Minutes. It was a really interesting interview. He was interviewing at the time Tom Brady of the New England Patriots. He's quarterback for them. Probably one of the, arguably one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game. I don't like him much personally uh, because they play in the same division as the Colts. But nevertheless, Tom Brady is a great quarterback. At the time, he had just won his third Super Bowl ring. He now has four. By the end of this season, he may have five. I don't know if you get one for your thumb at that point or what. But if he does get a fifth one, he'll be the greatest of all time, unquestionably. But after his third one, he sat down for this interview with Steve Croft, and Croft asked him this. He said, this whole experience, this whole upward trajectory, what have you learned about yourself? What kind of effect did it have on you? And this was Brady's answer. Well, I put, it put incredible amounts of pressure on me. When I feel like, when you feel like you're ultimately responsible for everyone and everything, even though you have no control over it, and you still blame yourself if things don't go right, I mean, that's a lot of pressure. A lot of times I think I get very frustrated and introverted, and there's times when I'm not the person I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27 years old. What else is there for me? Ross asked him this question. What's the answer? It was his response. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. He repeated it twice. Here's what I know. There's lots of people out there trying to find peace through lots of things. Some people try to find it through Super Bowls and supermodels. Some go down to the bar and they drink and they sing karaoke and they hope to take home a new friend for the night. Some lose themselves in the pursuit of money or of power or of titles on their corner office door. Some become political activists and they think that, well, if I can just get this person elected, well, that will make things better. If I can just get the right person, the right man, the right woman in the right offices, well, then that will be the solution to our problem. Some people seek it in marriage and in children. They think, well, if I just have, you know, the, the, the nice house in the suburbs with the white picket fence and, and the right spouse and, and nice kids, you know, 2.5 kids and a dog, that will be life. That will bring peace. Some people go to an ashram and they sit on top of a mountain and meditate and they think they're going to find peace there. 
Some people seek it through their sexuality. In our day, it's become popular to seek a new identity, even going so far as to surgically alter your body so you can make for yourself a new identity. Some people blow their mind with drugs, but at the end of the day, what everyone who seeks peace in one of these ways finds is that there is no ultimate peace to be found there. You can do all these things and you can try to forget the pain in your heart for a while, but it's still there when the experience is over. But the Prince of Peace has come. And those who seek Him find the peace that they so desperately seek. And if you look at these titles, what you see is four major things about him. He is wisdom. He is power. He is care. And he is the giver of peace, the only one that lasts. And as a result, the Bible invites us to trust him with our lives, and with our eternal destiny. And these titles aren't the only reason why we should, but they're a big part of the reason why we should. Because they tell us about a Savior who is worthy of the name Savior. They tell us about a Savior who is worthy of our trust, and our love, and our faith, and our hope. And since He is that kind of Savior, we also find out from verse 7 that He is a Savior who will fix everything. You know, a few weeks ago, Stephen preached through Isaiah chapter 11. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It describes the period of Messiah's coming rule and reign and what it will be like. And it says things like, the lion will lie down with the lamb. And the leopard with the kid, the, not the little child, but the goat, the little baby goat, okay? Leopards happen in our world right now to think that baby goats are high on the menu, right? But then there'll be peace between the predator and what is now the prey. And it says that a little child will be able to play by the hole of the poisonous snake and not come to any harm. And they will, he says, they will neither hurt nor destroy or kill on all my holy mountain. And there will be worldwide peace. Everything will be fixed. I have lived through all or parts of eight presidential administrations, and I like to read history. And what I found out is this, is that every time, every single time, by the way, where there's a presidential election next year, watch for this. This will happen. Every single time someone new is elected, there are all kinds of hopes and dreams that get pinned to that person. And we think to ourselves, this time it's going to be different. This will be the time. And no matter who it is, no matter who it is, 
along with the change that that person brings, there's also some change for the worse. And hopes are always disappointed. Always. And picking a new party to vote for is not going to change that. Our hopes are always dashed on the rocks of reality, and peace doesn't come, and the world is just as broken as before. And what we find out is is that we are people who are like drowning men who are offered uh, solutions to our toothache when we've got much bigger problems. Like, well, I I can work on tax policy for you. Well, that's not really the issue. It's not really the problem that we're dealing with. We have bigger problems than a mere politician can solve. I heard there was another shooting in Wisconsin yesterday. Problems are not problems of laws. Our problems are problems of the heart. Amen? And a politician is not going to fix that. But when King Jesus arrives, he will fix everything. According to verse 7, Jesus will rule over a worldwide kingdom, which I take both literally and physically. That you'll be able to see it. It's not going to be a metaphorical kingdom. It'll be a real kingdom. You'll be able to see it. In fact, everyone on earth will be able to see it. The Scripture says there will be no end to the increase of it, meaning it will stretch to the furthest corners of the globe. There will be no place where King Jesus does not rule. And it will never, never come to an end. Never. It won't be like the kingdoms and countries we have seen so far. It won't be a defense budget, for one thing. Because as the kingdom continues without end, so there will be peace across the entire world because the king will rule in every place. And he will rule with righteousness and with justice. And isn't that what we all want? the end of the day we want the world to align with righteousness and justice and it causes us so much pain as you watch what goes on in our world and we go ah and we groan like romans talks about it. it says the whole world all creation groans Longing for the day when the sons of God will be revealed. And we are longing for that day. That's the summary of all our hopes. That the king would come and that he would establish righteousness and peace and justice over all the earth. We're like people listening to the radio for a song we've never heard but we know is there. Or like gardeners looking for one special flower that seems nowhere to be found on the earth. But one day, 
the king is coming. And then our life down here will be transformed. Ecclesiastes says over and over that life down here under the sun is meaningless. If you read Ecclesiastes, it starts this way. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. But it concludes this way. Here is the end of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For that is the whole duty of man. That if you live your life apart from God, what you will find is that life is hopeless and full of strife and anguish and pain. But if you fear God and keep His commandments, it's the only hope that there is. Nothing else brings peace and joy and hope and meaning to our lives down here except for the King who has been born, the Son of David, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. According to the Scriptures, unto us is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And therefore, we need to examine for just a minute the implications of that truth. If you, if you like Christmas carols, and I love Christmas carols, I, I turn on the Christmas music before Thanksgiving, right? We, we, we celebrate at our house. We enjoy that. But one of the classic Christmas carols is, is the one that, that goes to the tune of green sleeves that says, What child is this? And every person who has ever been born needs to know the answer to that question. What child is this? We need to know because the king is coming. And when he comes, everything is going to be fixed forever. The only question is that when he arrives, will you receive him with joy or in fear? The sovereign Lord of the universe is coming with both reward and judgment. And the question, while you live this life, while you still have breath in your lungs and beats in your heart and waves in your brain, is this, which one will be yours when the kingdom is established? Will it be reward and welcome? Or will it be judgment and casting out? If you aren't sure, let me tell you how you can be. And I mean certain. You wouldn't stake your life on the answer to this question. You need to know. The Bible tells us that we're all sinners. And that all of our sin separates us from God. It has built a wall between us and God that we cannot climb over or go around. It is too tall to climb. It is too thick to dig through. We can't tunnel under it. We can't go around it. It is a wall between us and God. And no matter what we do, we cannot enter into God's presence because of our sin. By any means that we create for ourselves, we can't be good enough. 
We can't be smart enough. We can't do enough good deeds to balance the scales of God's justice. Our sins condemn us to eternity apart from God. But in fulfillment of the promises made to us through Isaiah here, 700 years before the birth of Christ, now 2,000 years since their fulfillment, we have the glory of Christmas. The Christ child who came, the Son of God who was born, who was born as a man that he might die for the sins of men like you and me. Taking the penalty that God's justice demanded, that he could give us the salvation that we haven't earned and do not deserve. See, here's how God's justice is satisfied. It says, the scripture says that if you are a sinner, you die. And you die not just physically, but you die eternally. Separated from the presence of God forever. Shut out from the presence of God and the majesty of His power, according to 1 Thessalonians. So God's justice has to be satisfied. God's grace wants to forgive sin. But God's justice demands payment for it. And so God in His grace... Since Jesus the Son into the world that his death might meet the righteous requirements of God's justice, that his blood might cover over your sin and mine, that God could forgive us our sin and still be just. See, the great question of the Bible is not. How can a loving God send people to hell? It's how can a just God welcome people into His presence? And the answer is only one way. Through the birth of the child son who is fully God and who will fix everything and who has fixed our biggest problem, which is our alienation and separation from God. Through His death on the cross, His blood covers our sin, and all who put their trust in Him are not counted as sinners anymore. They're counted as righteous because the righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to them. And all you have to do to settle forever your eternal destiny is put your trust in Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead to give you new life. Now, I'm going to invite you to do something that we don't normally do this, but I'm going to do this today. If you aren't for sure that at the moment that your last breath comes, if you don't know that I'm going to close my eyes for the last time and then open them again in the presence of the Savior. If you don't know that with absolute certainty, I want you to stay after church. The elders and I, part of us, are going to stay. We're going to get some pizzas. We're going to serve you lunch. We'll feed your kids lunch. We want you to stay as long as you need to to settle this issue. We'll stay all afternoon till tomorrow morning if we have to. 
okay? But we, we love you and we believe that this is the only hope that is really real. I want you to stay and solve this problem because this is the greatest question of life. What child is this? And I want you to enjoy the kingdom of God as a child of God with the people of God for an eternity with God. Amen? Now, as we close, I, wanted, I want you to just watch this little video by old pastor S.M. Lockridge. And over and over, you'll hear him make this statement, That's my king. I wonder if you know him today. If you aren't sure that you know the answer and that you know the king, don't go home. Stay right here. Meet me in the office. We'll feed you. We'll stay as long as you want to talk to you about meeting the king before he comes.